1: This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word.
0: If you don't determine what your life is about, I'm telling you, life is going to be disappointing and you're going to live with chronic discontent.
1: Today with Jeff Fines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill and it's such a blessing to be able to join you wherever you are and bring you another message from Pastor Jeff Vines. In this episode, Pastor Jeff has a message about life-changing love. We'll be in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, looking at the request of James and John, and at Jesus as an example of how we should be trying to live. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff now, on today with Jeff Vines.
0: While you're turning to Mark chapter ten verse thirty-five, uh, follow me here just a second. Probably somewhere around a dozen times a year, I will echo my favorite Soren Kierkegaard quote. Now, Søren Kierkegaard is a Danish philosopher, great philosopher, great reading, and he said this: He said, "I have learned to determine or live life backwards. I have learned to live life backwards. First, determine the goal, and then live life accordingly." Listen, sooner or later in your life, you have got to determine the goal of your life. What it is that you're living for, why it is that you exist. If you don't do that, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to flounder all your life from this thing to that thing, this thing to that thing, and you're going to live, secondly, with a chronic discontent. Because the soul knows very well when it doesn't have purpose or meaning, when it doesn't know why, it's living. And you can do this at a very young age. When you determine that that is the goal of your life, to be used by God, to be reconciled, restored completely to God and with God, you're going to make decisions all of your life based on that goal. If you don't determine what your life is about, young people, the sooner you do it, the better, I'm telling you, life is going to be disappointing and you're going to live with chronic discontent. Now, when we come to Mark 10, Jesus makes a transition away from doing all these miracles to trying to get it through the thick skulls of the disciples, how it is that we all should be living. And he gives us yet another distinction between Jesus' way of life and all the other religions and philosophies. To come to that conclusion so that we all may walk out of here knowing, okay, I got it. This is what Jesus says is the object of my life. This is the purpose. And this is how I then should live. In order for us to have the answer, we've got to go through some rugged terrain. So are you ready? Holding Mark 10. Let me start out like this. When I, when I was in high school, I have three brothers. The older brother's Tim. Three years under him is me, Jeff. And one year under me is Tony. He's the troublemaker of the family. Everybody has one, and if he were here, he would tell you that he he is the troublemaker, and still today he's the troublemaker, and he takes a certain amount of pride in that. And then there's three years after him is our youngest brother, Jody, who's just the perfect child, according to my mother. And so, youngest kid, you know how that goes. My brother, Tony, he was one year behind me, so when he was getting ready to graduate junior high school, I was a little nervous because he was always getting in fights, and I seemed to be able to avoid them. And I knew when he came up to high school that then I was going to have to protect my little brother. That's what big brothers do. It's our spiritual gift. We beat them up at home, protect them in public. <laughs> and so I knew if he was going to get in fights, I was going to have to be there for him. We, I guess school was probably two weeks into the new season, two weeks. And already I'm at one end of the school building and my friends come running. Jeff, you better come quickly. Your brother Tony's in a fight. And I'm thinking Two weeks. And I got four years of this. So I'm running down thinking. I said, by the way, who's he in a fight with? And they said, He's in a fight with Terence. Now, Terence was the biggest, baddest kid in school. So I know both of us are gonna get our clocks clean. Both of us. So I'm running down the hallway thinking, oh, this is it, you know, and I turn the corner right in front of the gymnasium where the fight's taking place. And there on the ground is Terrence. And my brother, little brother Tony, is making him submit. Which means he now became the biggest, baddest boy in school. And from that day forward, I looked at my little brother totally different, with a certain amount of healthy respect and fear, and wondered why he had allowed me to beat him up at home all these years. And also said to myself, from now on, when I pick on him, I'll do it in front of my parents in case I need to be rescued. Now you would think that the Zebedee brothers, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, would have been around Jesus enough by now to have a healthy respect and fear. Here's the guy that said to the winds and the waves, be still, and they just stopped. Now, that's some pretty awesome power. But the Zebedee brothers, James and John, come to Jesus, and they come to him really demanding something. They come and they say, Jesus, there's something we want from you. And Jesus' response is so gentle, he doesn't say, boys, you want to start over and say, may I, please? (laughs) But Jesus just says, okay, fellas, what do you want? And they said, we want when you come into your kingdom for one of us to sit on the right and one of us to sit on your left. Wow. See, they still thought Jesus' kingdom was gonna be earthly, that he was gonna overthrow the Roman powers and Israel would be restored to its rightful place and that James and John would be on the right and the left. Peter did the same thing when Jesus started talking about dying on the cross. Peter rebuked Jesus and said, stop that silly talk. You're gonna be in charge and you're gonna rule and I'm gonna be your right-hand man. In Matthew chapter 20, it's quite humorous because Matthew's version of the story is that James and John didn't ask directly that they actually got their mommy to go to Jesus and ask on their behalf. Read it sometime, verse 20, Matthew 20. So Zebedee's uh, sons, James and John, got their mother and the mother went to Jesus and said, "Uh, Jesus, uh, I'd like you to let my my boys be your brain trust when you come into your new kingdom and one sit on your right and one on the left. Now, the reason I start there before we get into Jesus' response, which is what the message is about, is because I want to give some application right up front. You have to be careful as a Christ follower, because here's what most of us do. Most of us spend our entire lives trying to get Jesus on board with our agenda, our plans, our goals and objectives, while he spends our entire lives trying to get us on board with his. So I ask everyone in the room, where's the place of tension right now in your life? the thing that you think you have or should have, but God's not delivering something that you think rightfully belongs to you. And you're trying to get God involved. And there's this tension between you and God and you just can't figure out why it's not happening. Is it possible? That's your agenda. Why do you get angry with God? By the way, you get angry because you think, you know how your life should be going better than he does. Where's the point of tension? Is it a roadblock? Maybe is it a detour? And Jesus is saying, I love you. I don't want you to go this way. Stop asking. Let's go this way. You have to be careful of using Jesus as a means to an end. To help you get the things you really want in life. When you first come to Christ, it's so tempting to see Christ as like, okay, I'm good with God now. Now, Jesus, here's some things that will really make me happy. You are going to help or not? I got a friend in Tennessee Jeff, I just can't believe in your Jesus, he said. I asked him, why? He said, because I asked him for a new car and I didn't get it. And I asked him for a new girlfriend and I didn't get it. And I asked him for a better job and I didn't get that and I asked him for more money and I haven't gotten that neither. He said, Jeff, your Jesus is over for 4. And I said, well, did you ask him for forgiveness of sins? Yes. Did you ask him for eternal life? Yeah. Did you ask him for daily bread? Do you have enough to eat every day? Yes. Did you ask him for shelter? Do you have a roof over your head? Yes. I said, my goodness, Jesus' batting average just increased to 500 in the last 30 seconds. He's four for eight. It's in Jesus' response to the Zebedee brothers that he gives us the object, the goal, and how you and I should be living Remember, we talked about the distinctions early on in the game with Mark. We said that most religions and philosophies talk to you about the advice of how to reach God. Jesus says, I'm not giving you advice. Let me give you good news. God's already been reached through the cross, it by faith. Every other philosophical system is about do. Do all these things. And if you do enough, then maybe God will accept you. Jesus says, no, it's already been done. You're already accepted by God. Embrace it by faith. And then every other philosophical system talks about the destruction in the end. Jesus talks about the restoration. That you will be restored, whatever you have lost, to an infinitely greater degree. There is one final distinction, and it's what Jesus talks about in Mark 10 through the end, really Mark 16. And it's in his response to the disciples' questions. And here's what he says You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And that's only because they wanted to ask Jesus first. Jesus called them together and said, "'You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant.'" And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now look at the word ransom just quickly. It's the Greek word lutron, which means to buy freedom of a prisoner. Jesus in effect is saying, I am here to procure your freedom. And in saying that, stay with me, he gives us two life-changing truths that when applied will show all of us how it is we're supposed to be living our lives. You with me? And here's the first one. All life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. I want us all to say it together on the count of three. One, two, three. All life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Now, stay with me on this. This is important. Because what we learn about Jesus then applies over to us, and we'll know how to live. I've got a friend. You probably know his name. I've mentioned him a thousand times. Mike Masterson, the bug man. He runs a pest management company called Isotech. Now, Mike's friendship with me cost me nothing because we're so delightfully similar. We think if everybody was like us, the world would be a better place. You ever had a friend like that? We have the same interests. We both love golf. We both love to shape the golf ball the same way, up high and to the right and turn over to the left. We think that's the way everybody should hit the golf ball. We love cafe mochas. Doesn't that make you want to go and get one right now? We also are very highly competitive, although in this case, I'm the only one willing to admit it. We have the same political persuasion. We have the same pet peeves, drivers on the 210 who do not know how to merge. (laughs) We also do not like slow drive throughs at fast food restaurants. We like Palm Springs. We like Newport Beach. He's easy to love. He has no needs. It's what we call a low-maintenance friendship. You ever had one of those? They're great, aren't they? Now, have you ever had a high-maintenance friendship? Have you ever tried to love someone who has a lot of needs and seems to have an uncanny ability to repeat them every time you're together? They're in trouble emotionally. They've been wounded. They have a tremendous baggage through no fault of their own. But you cannot love a person like that without taking a hit. It's going to cost you. Their troubles become your troubles. Their problems become your problems. Have you ever tried to save a drowning person? The first thing they do is try to take you down with them. And usually you can't save them unless you knock them out. Unfortunately, as Christ followers, we can't go around knocking people out. But the point is, the only way those types of people can be healed and emotional charged up and filled up is if you empty a little bit out of yourself into them. Some of your fullness will go out of yourself. And it'll have to go into them and you'll find it draining to a certain degree. You know who knows this more than anybody? Mothers, right? They, they understand this. Now, your father's gonna be a little lost in the next five minutes, but moms know the only way that your children can grow beyond your dependency into self-sufficiency is for you as the parent to abandon your own independence. And we're not talking about just for a few hours, just for a few days or weeks or months. We're talking about years. And quite frankly, Have you ever tried to dress a moving child? Have you ever tried to change a diaper of a moving child? Have you ever tried to bathe a child that doesn't want to be in the water? Ask any mom. Have you ever tried to read books, the same books, over and over and over? I believe that this drives some mothers into temporary insanity. And I know this by experience. Coming home from seminary, I guess Delaney was five or six years old. And my wife, Robin, who you know is a tough woman. She's a snake killer. She was reading a book and I was listening. And I thought, that's it. My wife's lost it. And the title of the book was Everybody Poops. <laughs> and she was reading this to, I mean, what happened to the Bible and John MacArthur's book, Faith to Grow On? And I'm listening. You've got to be kidding. And this book is a children's book that has many versions. And Delaney's favorite toys were at that time Legos. And it even had a photo of a Lego. <laughs> And his second favorite toy was Star Wars. It even had a photo of Star Wars. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, my wife has gone too far. (laughs) And I've come home from seminary at times after a full day of this, and I've said to my wife, I'm going golfing, and she immediately gives me the death stare that every man is familiar with. It's what is greatly feared by all husbands. And my point is, if you gather all this together, there's this sacrificial love that comes from mothers. You couple all that together with less than scintillating conversation all day long. And once you begin to learn that unless you as a parent sacrifice much of your freedom and a good bit of your time, your child will not grow up healthy and equipped to function. And the reality is a lot of parents are not willing to do this. And so their children never grow up functioning well. The point I'm making here is that you can make the sacrifice or your children are going to make it. It's them or you. Either you suffer temporarily in a redemptive way, or they're going to suffer tragically and wastefully in a destructive way. You know why? Let's go back and say it together on the count of three. One, two, three. All real life changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Therefore, does it not make perfect sense that God steps into the world and he's going to conquer evil, pain, suffering, and death? If he's going to do that, he's going to have to give up something very precious that we may gain something very precious. That's what a parent does. That's exactly what Paul said in Philippians 2 where he says, Jesus made himself nothing. Nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And do you know why he did that? Let's say it together again. Because all, let's go now, with vigor and passion, all real life-changing love is costly substitutionary sacrifice. I read an article just recently in National Geographic and uh, at the advice of Tim Keller in his book. King's Cross, on which this whole series has been based, is about forest fires in California. And you know, after forest fires, you will have the park rangers make uh, their way up the mountains uh, to just investigate the damage. And it had a story in there where they came across a little bird of which there was nothing left but a carbonized petrified shell covered in ashes, uh, just hunched down at the base of the tree. So... The park ranger just kind of sickened by this, took a stick and knocked the bird over, and out from underneath the bird came three little chicks, who had been spared under under the mother's wings, and because she had been willing to die, those under the cover of her wings were able to live. Now you say, Pastor Jeff, okay, I think I'm still with you. What does this have to do with the way I live, folks? This is where. The Christian message is absolutely distinct from primitive religions. People will come to me and say, Pastor Jeff, if you think about it, Christianity is no different than all the other old religions. You got wrath, justice, debt, and punishment. But folks, before Jesus came, there was absolutely no concept whatsoever of a God who would pay the penalty on our behalf. Wrath, yes, it was there. But a God who would enter time and space and suffer so that we could go free was unheard of. The disciples to tell you the truth, aren't really that slow. It's just unfathomable to them that God would ever leave his throne and die a painful and gruesome death that you and I could go free. They just didn't get the fact, no matter how many times Jesus said it, that after Jesus died on the cross, that the world comes right side up and the clock starts to tick backwards. What do I mean by that? Well, Tim Keller in King's Cross mentions the illustration from C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's a classic line Where the writer says, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. What does that mean? It means that as you and I live, we're not going 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, the end. That's not our lives. Because of what Jesus did, the clock is ticking down. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. New life. The life for which we've always waited it's new life. Everything's reversed now. And we might be getting older, but the clock is ticking and it's going 10, nine, eight. And one day we'll all step through that doorway and it'll be the doorway to the life we've always wanted. Now the Zebedee boys just aren't getting it. Jesus has explained it, that real life changing love is always substitutionary sacrifice And because they haven't got it, he makes a second statement. And it's in the second statement that it becomes clear.
1: We need to pause there for today, but next time we'll come back to hear how Jesus gets his message through to James and John.
0: Jesus came, there was absolutely no concept whatsoever of a God who would pay the penalty on our behalf
1: join me for that, and for more from the Book of Mark, here on Today with Jeff Vines.
0: Today with Jeff Vines.
1: For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines.